Let's pray. Gracious God, on this day we, we give you thanks for your promises. Help us to base our lives on your promises, for your word is good. You will catch us. You will provide for us. You will redeem us. You will restore us. Let us never doubt this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll try to make sense of, of what Dave just read, and uh, we'll go through it a little bit uh, together. The conclusion of the book of Ruth brings the redemption and the restoration of Ruth and Naomi through no less than four different redeemers in this particular story. Or is it one redeemer through three human redeemers? What do you see? How do you read it? You be the judge. How many do you count? We'll come back to that. So we pick up the story from last week. Parents, cover your kids' ears. Because Ruth took Naomi's advice and spent the night with Boaz on the threshing floor. And as a result, now Boaz has promised to marry Ruth. There is, however, the other matter of Ruth's redemption. That word kept coming up along with next of kin, and uh, apparently only the, the, the first of kin, next of kin, can redeem, redeem Ruth. So what exactly does redemption mean? Not clear in chapter 3. We know it has to do with the family, the family name, and more. And then in the fourth chapter, today's lesson, we find out quite abruptly what redemption means. Now, if after the lesson was read today, you felt confused, uh, have no fear. Uh, I felt confused too. And biblical scholars who study this read this, and they're confused, and they debate its particulars having to do uh, historically with inheritance, laws, and redemption, and the like. Uh, for this reason, they debate it. The known laws of that time are not completely adhered to in this text. They're probably local customs that, that were going on they, they're not aware of. And because it, the story's clearly been edited along the way, and in some ways it doesn't all fit together. But here is what scholars pretty much agree on. Boaz had promised Ruth that he would approach his brother or relative as the next of kin to ask about redeeming Ruth. Right? The scene takes place at the city gate where the elders would meet and essentially transact legal business on behalf of the town. I mean, it had the official status of, of court, a courtroom. Boaz refers to his brother as friend, which comes from a Hebrew word that can, can mean, among uh, many things, can mean brother, which is probably what he was. So, Boaz says to his brother that Naomi is selling her land, and it must be offered, first of all, to the next of kin, i.e., Boaz's brother. We'll just call him brother from now on. So now we know what all this talk of redemption is about. It's about land land, precious commodity, 
at any point in history. Since Naomi had no heir to pass on her husband Elimelech's land, she was forced to sell it to the next of kin to keep it in the broader family, but not Elimelech's name. Brother agrees to buy the land. He sees it, oh, this is a good deal. And after he agrees, Boaz adds a twist, doesn't he? Purchase of the land legally entails marrying the widow Ruth from Moab, who had married into the family. Oh, really? So if you buy the land, you also buy Ruth, or have ownership and implied marriage. Brother quickly concluded that this was not in his best interest because now that Naomi could have a grandson and heir through this new marriage, the land would eventually go back to her, to her heir, and stay under the name of Elimelech, not his own name, the brother's, the unnamed brother's name that we don't know because he's a nameless brother. The bottom line is the land would stay in Elimelech's name if he married Ruth and had a son, so he'd lose the land. So suddenly the deal's off. And this would be an embarrassing thing for him uh, that Boaz had set up at the gates of the city. Boaz no doubt saw this outcome ahead of time and decided, A, he was ready to both marry and redeem Ruth and redeem Naomi at the same time. Are you with me? Is this making sense? Yeah, sure, Pastor. <laughs> you see, Boaz was already rich, and he didn't need the land for himself. So when God gave Ruth and Boaz a son, whose name was Obed, there was now an heir to Elimelech's and Naomi's name. So the family name of Elimelech would not die out. So that was part of the redemption as well. And it is from, here's where it gets really interesting. It is from this ancestral branch, that this is like the what's at stake here question, from this ancestral branch that we soon get King David and eventually Jesus. So this isn't just any lineage we're talking about. These are the ins and outs about how this came together. There are some really interesting things about this story and its significance for the church. Let's, let's talk about that. As you may have gathered, this was a, uh, a patriarchal world, you know, unlike our world today, where it's even and balanced. And that was a joke. <laughs> it's not entirely. We're getting closer to balance, but this was really a patriarchal world where inheritance laws and legal rights were heavily tipped toward the men. So women were in a vulnerable way, to say the least, particularly if they didn't produce a male heir, right? Since this story is about Ruth and Boaz finding each other and producing the ancestral line that would give us Jesus, it's worth pointing out some remarkable women in Ruth and Boaz and Jesus' ancestry. This, this is the ancestral line leading to Jesus, and it goes back a ways, too. And, 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 and David uh, read some of those uh, names expertly for you already. For instance, Ruth's ancestry can be traced to an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Uh, meanwhile, Boaz is descended from an illicit relationship between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, a Canaanite woman. <laughs> what? In both cases, 
It was the women who tricked the men into sleeping with them in order to produce an heir and secure their own futures. Then you have Ruth herself who took things into her own hands, scandalously visiting Boaz in the middle of the night to orchestrate her own marriage. Such tales of ribaldry here, huh? What is obvious in any of these stories is that these women, sure, they had self-serving mixed motives for what they did, but let's be honest. They were trying to survive in a world <laughs> where women were quickly left out in the cold, huh? So they did what they did to survive and secure a life for themselves and their children. So these women, okay, were not exactly saints, but the Bible is full of stories like Ruth, who were empowered women in a difficult period of history. And while it's, we may not want to say that it was God who empowered them in everything they did, although it might have been, it's fair to say, without a doubt, that God was at work through such compromised women as Ruth, Tamar, and Lot's unnamed daughter. God was at work through them, redeeming human lives. Theirs, those around them, and their descendants as well. And doing it by following through on God's promises that Allison highlighted in her children's message. The promise that no matter what happens and how unfaithful you are as a people, I will work through you and with you to be a blessing to you and so that you can be a blessing to the world. But it's also the case in the Bible. The men are even more famously compromised than the women. For instance, from Abraham selling his wife down the river to save his own skin, to Jacob's pathological deviousness, to King David's seri uh, uh, serious moral uh, lapses, God worked through deeply flawed men to accomplish his purposes. The same was clearly the case with, with women. So you read the Bible and you, you realize God does not only work through the righteous, if they even exist. They don't, by the way. But through the broken vessels that we all are. Not because we deserve it, but because God chooses to work through us. Why? Simply put, because we are valued, precious creatures, creations of God, and we are loved and we are therefore worth redeeming in the eyes of our God. So reflect on yourself and whatever flaws you have. Likely there are flaws or inadequacies that cause you shame, perhaps some that you try to hide. I know for a fact that many, many people of faith think their faith is weak and paltry, not worth much, that, they're not, that their lives are just not very conducive to God working through them because, well, they're just not that spiritual or they're not that good that they don't really have a faith story worth telling. I mean, I've heard this countless, who, me? I'm just me. <laughs> and then you read the Bible, and you realize that God is comfortable working with the medium of the likes of Ruth and Tamar, David and Jacob, you and me. Oh, it may pain God terribly at times to work with the likes of us, especially when we're, you know, and we're pains and the you-know-what. 
But the God that we worship is all in with us. This God shows up with us, in, with, and under our lives. The success we have in this world and the great tales that we read about in the Bible, make no mistake, are on account of God's faithfulness, not human goodness. That's why, by the way, it's so important for us at Mount Carmel to learn more together how to talk about our faith stories, our faith uh, journeys, our unfolding journeys that we maybe don't understand very well, our questions and our struggles, joys and insights. Why? Because God's there. That's why. Um, we're, we're attempting to understand and see God who shows up in our lives because we're not just talking about human stories. We're talking about the God who redeems us through our stories and through each other. So let's talk about the redeemers in this, or how many redeemers in this funny and perhaps risque little story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. With all this talk of redeeming and uncovering, we realize that Ruth plays the role of redeemer for Naomi, a bit of a Christ-like figure in some way. She saves her. Even when Naomi had rejected her, Ruth persisted in her commitment to Naomi and becomes a powerful metaphor for God himself in the person of Ruth and her unconditional love. And the women at the end of the story remind Naomi of this, that Ruth's love for her has redeemed Naomi. In the concluding thoughts for this story, they say, I quote, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Beautiful words. What is really cool is that these women who speak here clearly mean much more than just the legal definition of redeemed, getting land back in her deceased husband's name. No, they mean in the holistic sense of having a family born out of love and devotion, a daughter-in-law and a son who can take care of her as she grows old. Where once Naomi felt cursed by her losses and emptiness, now her blessings were bountiful. And Ruth, through her unshakable faithfulness to Naomi and her bold move securing Boaz as a husband, was a redeemer. Likewise, couldn't you say that Naomi was a redeemer for Ruth, as she urged Ruth to act in chapter 3? One can easily say that Boaz was a redeemer for both Naomi and Ruth. And when Obed was born, he too, that little one, was a redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. Obed, the redeemer, his descendant would one day be Jesus, the Redeemer, with a capital R. How about you? Are you a Redeemer in the way that these people are? I think so. But this story, once again, is not just about Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and Obed, but about a transcendent and benevolent power at work in and through the events of broken, messy human lives. People do these things, and then... There is God at work bringing wholeness and restoration to Naomi. And that's why the Magnificat was the gospel lesson. The Lord has done good things. The Lord has done good things. This is what God does. 
This is what God promises to Naomi, to Ruth, to you, and to me. It may not be on our timeline. We may get frustrated and say, when are you going to show up, God, and give me the things I ask for? Why am I going through what I'm going through? It may not occur just the way we would draw it up, but it is promised nonetheless by our loving Father in heaven who came down in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus to redeem us in the folly of this life, to bring us life. And so the bold and compromised Ruth is a redeemer, for she was also committed and faithful. She even trusted a God, the God of the Israelites, not the one she grew up with. Which leads to one final thought for today. There's so much here, of course, and uh, mercifully I, I won't go on forever. But one final thought. As we reflect on this marvelous unfolding story in the Old Testament, we realize once again how often foreigners and and immigrants play key roles in securing Israel's future. Ruth was a Moabite, Tamar a Canaanite woman, Boaz's mother Rahab was a non-Israelite woman. This is not just an incidental feature, but part of the message of the Bible. God is at work through those we consider other. To insulate ourselves, therefore, from those who are different is to limit the ways God is with us and the way that God's story unfolds with us. In refusing, in any way, this isn't just the political sense, it certainly is that too, in refusing to give immigrants a chance, we block God at the very same time. Obviously, we live in a cultural climate where this is a big question, where it is, I submit to you, uh, too easy for us to demonize the other and the foreigner. But for Christian and Jewish reasons, that point of view is fraught with peril and runs counter to this story. Amen.